words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. After years of careful study and analysis, I've come to the conclusion that there are two kinds of people in the world. <laughs> there are those people who sit through a movie until the very last credit, and those that get out as soon as the action is over. Now, I used to be one of those people who left as soon as the action was over, but now I am a Marvel superhero fan. So I have learned you can't get up until the very end because there's something that's going to come. You have to wait because there's something more. And as I sit waiting for that last little bit of film, I watch the perfunctory roles, the characters that come through. And after the characters, the main characters, and then the secondary characters, right after that, and before those things, you don't know what they are, like a gaffer and a best boy. In between those two are these parts that don't have a proper name, but a role, like man with dog, played by so-and-so, right? Or three waitresses, and then they give their names. So their role in the movie's narrative doesn't require that we know it. They are defined by their function, we need only know them in that limited sense that she's a waitress or that he's a man with a dog. And you can be sure if that is your role, there will be no character development. <laughs> now, I would imagine that there are people who are actors who are actually happy to have those roles, that that's kind of their gig and that's what they do. And I also would imagine that there are aspiring actors who love to have the opportunity to be on the big screen. But I can't help but wondering what it's like when you're at a cocktail party and someone says, what do you do? And you say, well, I'm an actor. And they say, well, have you been in any films? And you go, yes. And you name all of these major blockbusters and they look at you and then you say, okay, well, remember the scene when this person got, right? And you say, look in the lower left-hand corner, and that's me. That's kind of what this is like. The fact of the matter is, naming means something in our context. And when we read this story in 2 Kings, we can make a number of observations. First, we observe that it is a compact story. Seven verses move us from a crisis to a miraculous situation. If you are a Bible student, as I know you all are, you will also note that this is the first of four miracle stories in chapter 4 in 2 Kings, and that these four legends about the prophet Elisha help to establish his reputation as a prophet. If you're thinking about teaching Sunday school, you might observe that this story gives us an opportunity to learn about God's power and God's provision. But I observe that all that we can learn from this passage happens without us even knowing the name of this woman. We don't know her name. We don't know her age. We don't know anything about her children. We don't know her husband's name. 
And if we are not careful, the woman in this story becomes widow in need. Another function, another role, a bit part in a chapter that's really about the prophet. There will be no character development, and if we're not careful, she simply becomes another problem to be solved and a caricature of her own self. Now, I want to make clear, I think the story functions with us not knowing her name. But I want to suggest that a carefully directed reading opens up some interesting possibilities in this narrative. If you have your Bibles open, follow with me in the narrative in the way that it begins. There is a momentum there where it says this woman cried out. That's the verb. She cries out to the prophet Elisha. And when you hear that, I want you to think about someone crying out of tremendous loss. She has lost her husband and her security and her status and her companionship. Loss after loss after loss after loss. Like living on an island country where you have a major earthquake. And then before everything gets back to right, there's a hurricane. Loss after loss after loss. And this woman comes with the momentum of all of that need that comes from all of that loss to the prophet and tells him that she has a problem. And Elisha decides he wants to ask questions and conduct an interview. <laughs> he says, what shall I do for you? Now, the first time I read this, I was annoyed. I'm thinking to myself, look, man, I'm not a prophet, but even I know what you need to do. For starters, for starters, how about paying off her creditor? Cash is good, credit card, check, PayPal, whatever the ancient Near Eastern equivalent is, that would be a good start. At second glance, the prophet's question slows down the pace of the narrative. His question invites reflection. Let's think about this for a minute. Elisha is the son of the prophet Elijah. He wears his mantle. He has a double portion of his spirit. He's already exhibited his power. It's safe to say Elisha could fix the problem. So the question is, to do, is designed to do something other than solve the situation. Perhaps some of the fixing has to happen to her. I say this because that question, what shall I do for you, requires a shift. It requires a shift from complaining about what's wrong to imagining so that you can begin to articulate what you want. Do you just want the crisis to be resolved? Or do you want more? What shall I do for you? Sometimes we allow our circumstances, our histories, our experiences, and our past hurts to limit our imagination. Our relationships, wife of, student of, 
belonging, coming from this diocese, all of these things frame our understanding of how God works. You want to test it out? Try going to a new church and ask, why don't we do fill in the blank? <laughs> and people start doing this, no, oh no, 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 no. And they begin to tell you a story about why they can't do it. That their imagination gets limited by their experience. The prophet's question is an invitation to engage our sanctified imagination, to see yourself as more than a product of your history, as more than something that has been put upon you, as to be something other than the ways you have been signified. She's more than a widow in crisis. And this question is an invitation to her full humanity. What shall I do for you? The question is not only an invitation to full humanity, but it is inviting her to risk an authentic relationship. So long as we're sitting back and complaining and providing color commentary about everything that's wrong with our lives, we're not really engaging in a dynamic relationship. But when you venture to ask for something, you're risking. So I'm not a professional fundraiser, but I know that fundraisers have this little dance they do. They learn about the person that they're going to sit with and they make sure that they are aware of the things that are important to this person and they attend functions together and they wine them and they dine them. But sooner or later, they have to get to the ask. Sooner or later, you want to move to the place where you ask for what you want. And asking something of God requires an existence where you imagine more than just getting out of your crisis. The risk in asking of God is that we may not get what we want. But the benefit of asking God is that we enter into relationship. Elisha's not finished with his questions. The second question, what do you have in your house? I like this question because he doesn't say, do you have anything in the house? The question assumes that she does. How does he know she has something in the house? All of a sudden, now Elisha wants to be a prophet right? Now he knows that she has something. I don't know if that's it. I think Elisha understands something about God's economy that we miss all the time. In God's universe, there is no such thing as nothing. Let's think about this. First, as Americans, I don't, I don't have to say a lot here, we live in a land of plenty. We throw away things that could sustain others. And we do this on a regular basis. But if we broaden our perspective and think about the economy of God, this text reminds us that God is in the business of redeeming what others throw away. 
God delights in lost causes. God, not me, specializes in dysfunctional disciples. God is drawn to us because of what we don't get right. I walked over today to see the beauty of this day. It's a lovely fall day when you remember what a joy it is to be a part of this created world. But do not forget that the Bible says God created the world out of tohu vabohu, which gets translated as formless and void. Empty, something without a shape that's empty. Robert Alter's translation of this form is welter and waste. God created the world out of formless and void, out of welter and waste, or the Judy Fentress Williams translation, God created the world out of a hot mess. <laughs> the act of creation itself was an act of transformation. And it doesn't matter how little the thing is or what the condition is in. What matters is that we have it, and God asks simply that we bring it to contribute to God's economy. This question is going to require us to shift from thinking about what we lack to thinking about our potential. When we were in Tanzania, we stayed in a guest house, and once a week there was a trip to the market. And during that trip, all of the food that we were going to eat that week was purchased. There was no trip to the Wawa in the middle of the week. And so as the week went on, I observed that the refrigerator got progressively emptier, but there was always enough to eat. There was always enough to eat. And I couldn't help but think about my children who stood in front of a refrigerator full of food and said, there's nothing to eat. Some of what we need to do in our spiritual lives is adjust our focus to stop focusing on what we believe we don't have and to focus on all that God has given us. My grandparents and their parents and their parents before them had this saying. They talked about God and God's ability to make something out of nothing. And that phrase got used not just to refer to God, but it got used to refer to the way they survived. That they would create meals out of what we would call humble food, ingredients that no one really cared much for, things that are now popular like kale and sweet potatoes. <laughs> anyway, back in the day, it was very cheap. And they would take the, that humble food and clean it up and season it so that we could sit down to a good meal. And every time you sat down to eat, you had cause to remember how good God was because God's act of redeeming whatever it is that we have shows us how we can live in this world. There are two miracles in this story. And before the woman's needs can be met, she herself has to be transformed. And once that transformation happens, she now is able to enter into a world where she can go outside and borrow vessels. And I love this part of the story because this is the part where I don't want to be this widow. I don't want other people to know I'm in need. 
And how do you borrow empty vessels from people without explaining what you're doing? There's something about this story that reminds us of the importance of community. Some of God's best work happens in community. We need others to speak to us and to remind us of the vision that God has for us. Some of what God does happens in community because the problem of this widow is bigger than her own personal problem. The problem of this widow is a problem of a systemic society that sells children into slavery. And so the entire community needs to be a part of making a change. There's an outside piece and there's an inside piece. Part of this work that God does is going to require us to enter into solitude, to go into that house and shut the door and ask ourselves, can we really trust God? Can we really rely on God? She has to do both. And after the miracle proper happens, she goes back to a prophet who tells her to sell what she has. Now this part of the story I love because as a conservative person, I probably would have gotten just enough jars of oil to pay off the debt. But if you get this right, there's enough for your life on the other end. The reason he asks the questions is because it was never God's intention just to fix your problem today. God has a future for you. And she has to change in order to see that God is not just interested in fixing the situation right now. She enters the story defined by what she lacks, but at the end, she exits with a future. Whatever your circumstances are today, whether you are in a very good place or crisis with a capital C or a crisis with a small C, regardless of whether your resources are abundant or, or you are running on fumes, the story remains the same in its message. We serve a God who is interested in reorienting us from wherever we sit to imagine something larger than we are, to make a difference not just for ourselves and our situation, but for our communities and for our lives and for the world. It is my prayer that we can have an imagination as great as God's grace. Amen. Amen.